Welcome back to the next episode of EYC. On the show today, we have Patrick Bagby. Pat is a Senior Program Manager for Castings and MVH Products at Roush Industries. Before that, he was an R&D Engineer for Smith's Medical and a Custom Design Engineer at Wabash National. Originally from the Cleveland area, he graduated from Purdue University in 2011 with a Mechanical Engineering Technology degree, and more recently from the University of Michigan-Dearborn in 2019 with an MBA. When he's not working, he's chasing around his two girls, or chasing a puck on the ice, or searching for his golf ball in the rough. Pat. Welcome to EYC. And here we are, next episode of EYC. Got Brennan on the line. Brennan, how are we doing, man? I'm good, except I'm not even on the line. We're, no, we're in person again, second well, episode. You're on the same line as me. We're that, sh- that's we're true. We are, we are literally a headphone splitted on the same line today. It's so good. I know. You're too close. Too close. And it's also because we only have one microphone. So, uh-huh. you know, we're it is. It the audio logistics of a podcast. I don't know. I mean, I, I'm getting a PhD in a discipline near like audio and, it, and it's still pretty complicated. So to all you podcasters out there that do this without the technical experience, touche. Good yeah, job. Good job. Good job. There's a, there's a lot going on we struggle. with all these zeros and ones. We struggle, but we made it and who made it hap- hopefully or happily with us is Patrick. Welcome, man. Pat, how are you doing? Hey, thanks for having me guys. Yeah. Gra- mm-hmm. Glad you could be here. Glad we can make this happen. Pat and I worked together at Roush for a couple of years. Um, so Cool to kind of bring in some different perspective. Um, so we probably should just go right ahead and bring everyone up to speed on who you are, man, what you're doing, and how you got to where you are. So if you don't mind giving us your kind of origin story, we'd, we'd love that. Sure. Yeah. I grew up in Cleveland, went to high school there. From there, I decided to go the engineering route, obviously. That's why I'm here. Um, went out to Purdue, studied mechanical engineering technology out there. While I was in school, I had an internship uh, at Eaton with their performance plastics, making uh, extrusion hoses out there, and then graduated and went out to work for Wabash National, uh, making my dealers. And then after that, went to South Carolina, did some more extrusion molding and learned infection molding down there. And now I'm finally in at Roush and outside of Detroit, where I met you, right? So uh, that's the uh, real short origin story there. Nice. Okay. So, so I guess let's so let's I guess walk it back. So how did we how did we get to Purdue? I guess it, I mean you're looking at a few schools. How how did you how did you finalize on Purdue? Yep. So I knew I wanted to be an engineer. Um, I've always been mechanically inclined. My family was not mechanically inclined whatsoever. So anytime okay. anything in the house broke it was up to me to fix it even at a young age interesting uh, you can imagine there was a lot of deep used and uh you know those skills that i acquired you know i figured out that i really liked them, that sort of thing so i went to school for engineering um had a few different choices but i picked purdue because of just the great reputation it has for engineering right so when you go to get a job you know if you go to get a job in California, you're going to know Purdue as an engineering school. If you go to get a job in Florida, they're going to know Purdue as an engineering school. You know, if I went to a, a smaller school, let's say, you know, maybe someone in Florida wouldn't know that school or California. And uh, it, it definitely helped that my uncle also went to Purdue as an engineer. So he was uh, calling me probably weekly, asking me if I was going to Purdue. <laughs> okay. <laughs> nice. So, um, and I, I definitely think I made a great choice there. Awesome. Yeah, it always seems like there's there's some kind of connection to the schools that people go to, whether it's a family member that went there or, 
or something. So you, so you did, yeah, you, your uncle who had. Yep. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. He definitely helped me out there. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. So, so you, 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 did you specialize, I guess, tell, tell me about how you picked your classes and stuff at Purdue. Did you specialize in something or did you, did you have a specialty type program or did you end up just taking more like general classes? I had no idea what I really wanted to do going okay. to Purdue. So I picked mechanical engineering um, because it is the most general of the engineering, at least I think so. And, um, and then I ended up into technology, uh, which is basically engineering minus the math past algebra or not algebra, um, calculus too. So no TQ, no linear algebra. And it concentrates a little bit more on the manufacturing side of things and how things are made um, so that we, we can bridge that gap between like a design engineer and production and getting it made and you know talking to the design engineer saying hey you know you can design it one way but you have to manufacture it in a different way um, which actually is a lot of what I do right now yeah, no, definitely. And so I think, Pat, you're the first person on the show who, is, who has had a technology degree. So for those listening who are not familiar, in college, I think I'm pretty sure a lot of them do, at least the ones that I know, have essentially a technology track within the engineering program. So there's like mechanical engineer or mechanical engineering, but then there's also mechanical engineering technology, electrical engineering, electrical engineering technology. Um, and so they're almost like two different tracks you can take. Some universities don't necessarily call them different tracks or whatever, um, but they do highlight less technical math and science uh, on the on the technology side for more hands-on type experience. Like if you're a person who, who is more hands-on, doesn't necessarily love the math, but loves getting their hands dirty and that type of thing, like the technology route is a very valid, valid option. So how, how did you, Pat, get to the point where you knew you wanted to do the technology route? Did you do that from the start or did you decide that later? Nope. Um, I started in mechanical engineering, and uh, after a couple tries at calculus two, I was like, "This is only going to get harder from here." Um, let me see what else I can do in this area. Okay. I moved over the technology side, and I could not have been happier. Like you were talking about, um, we had a, a lab where all we did was uh, learn about different manufacturing processes. So we learned about casting, uh, welding. Uh, CNC, uh, you know, working on a lathe, um, not necessarily to actually do those jobs, but understand how they work, you know, speeds and feeds, uh, pouring rates, pressures, all that stuff like that. Um, so that when, you know, you go out and talk to someone on the line and they say, hey, you know, you can't make this because the pressure is too low. And you can go back to the engineer, the design engineer, or whoever it is and say, hey, this doesn't work because, you know, whatever it is. So uh, that was kind of the reason I went for MEP and uh, pretty happy with it. That's for sure. I think that's awesome though, that you started like hitting into a, a roadblock there with math and didn't give up. I know lots of people who, when they ran into classes they didn't like or things they struggled with, they're like, I'm just, I'm just giving up either. Like I'm dropping out of college or I'm moving on to something else. Right. Um, and so like sticking with that, I think is an important thing to notice that just because that's not working out. Cause I think there's a lot of people especially when they're younger, go like, I can't be an engineer because I'm not good at math or this or that. Like there are routes to get into this that you don't have to be like, obviously what you are doing now, which, which we'll get into, like 
there's no difference. There's no difference between between the degree you got and I got in terms of where you're at today. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's a good point. Yeah, I think there is a lot of people that think like, okay, yeah, like I, I'm not good at math, so I can't be an engineer. But that that struggle with that idea because they they know they want to do engineering type work. You know, I don't. I mean, so I think yeah, looking at the technology route is is a serious one to consider, and I think it has a, has a lot of really great benefits. And to Brennan's point, really for the vast majority of jobs, like it really doesn't matter. I mean, unless you're doing a more researchy type job, which you wouldn't want to do anyways, if that was your personality. So it's not even right. really that big, that big of a deal, but, yep. um, okay. So you're getting close to graduation at Purdue looking, I got to get this, the first job. So walk, walk us through the process of how you got to Wabash. Well, uh, I actually worked with a recruiter and it was pretty standard, or at least what I've come to describe as a standard job search where you just kind of spread your resume out to as many people as you can and um you know one of the recruiters came to me and said hey i've got this job at wabash national um you're a custom design engineer which obviously sounded pretty cool and uh so i went in and interviewed and um you know they told me about the job and luckily i i got it and uh you know that's uh that's how I got it. I don't know. It's not a great story. Okay. No, well, no. I mean, that's fine. I mean, it is, it is what it is. I didn't, I didn't. So you were kind of looking for any type of job. I guess my, maybe my question is more like, did you know, like what search terms you were looking for? Were you just looking for anything that had J-O-B in the name? Like, I mean, I guess where, where were you looking at a specific area that you were interested in? So my thinking was first get a job and then go from there. Okay. So. Um, I wanted to get, gain more experience, uh, you know, get in the workforce, start making money, get out on my own, and then, you know, try to figure out what I can do from there, which worked out, uh, you know, definitely got some good experience there and, uh, you know, launched my career. So you said you, you were a custom design engineer there. Yep. Uh, like you said, like, it sounds like an awesome title. Like <laughs> it's a cool title, but ultimately like, what did, what does that mean? What did that mean for that job? So we did a little bit of custom designing, but our main responsibility was to create trailer production orders. So our sales team would go out to these companies that needed trailers and would spec out trailer and it would come to us in a all page document which is all just words and things like needs to be 12 feet high needs to have you know six wheels whatever it is um bogey which is the axle wheel combination needs to slide so far um so then we would take that all page document and turn it into all the materials that are the production floor could use and the purchasing department could uh, order all the nuts and bolts and everything was on that uh, production order. So it was a fairly important job in the scheme of things because obviously if you screw that up, um, the tool is not getting made. And then there were a lot of cases actually where, you know, they wanted something special on it, whether it was, like a, you know, the front was a little bit taller than the back. So then you'd have to redesign the whole side to be slanted all the side panels be cut at different angles. Um, maybe they, you know, there's all simple stuff like, hey, they wanted blue rivets instead of the uh, galvanized steel rivets. So then you have to go spec out blue rivets or go find blue rivets. Um, and then, uh, you know, some of the other stuff we were talking about, 
you'd have to actually create the drawings for the new side panels or the decal layout or the the actual combination, whatever it is. So, um, and then, you know, when it ran, we had to be on site, make sure uh, if we screwed something up, we were there to answer any questions that the production line had. You know, hey, you ordered little rivets or wrong rivet, we could tell them, okay, this is the right rivet, um, things like that. Yeah, those are those are the hard parts of the engineering job. Like, I mean, I, like it's one thing that I'm still getting used to today. But like, as an engineer, you're you're forced to make technical decisions that at some point, likely, you will get called out on if you're wrong. Like, it's not now. There are some engineering jobs where that's not true, where you just get to do stuff and then someone else gets to handle your problems. But um, it's pretty common, especially in more hands-on jobs where it's like, okay, I need to make a bunch of decisions. And you go and you make 20 decisions. I need these rivets. I need these things. And you're doing it quick, right? You got all yeah. kinds of stuff going on. You got two different projects going on, purchasing's after you because the project before will cost too much. And so they want to make it cost less this time. And you're also just trying to be nice to your neighbors. So there, there's all kinds of all like, things going on in life, right? But you're still trying to do that. You're still trying to do it. And then two months later, production says, Hey, that job, remember when it was super busy and you had a bunch of stuff going on and you made all these decisions? Well, you forgot this small part. You ordered the wrong size rivets. What are we going to do now? Like, and then it's these engineering moments that come out. Like these are the engineering moments, like where it's not, it's not, it's, it's helpful when you're designing stuff, but I, I, these are pure engineering moments when you have problems and it's like, okay, the problem is right now. This is the technical problem. You understand the domain. What's the path forward? That's where the engineer comes into play because they have to take into take into consideration all the technical objectives of whatever you're trying to do and also what the problem is and then make the decision that's going to get us to the best possible. We've talked about in episodes before where engineering is all, it's not about getting to 100%. It's about what's the best way to get to the highest possible percent. So it's like in the rivet case where we pick the wrong rivets, it's like, well, we, we have these rivets and this one will be structurally sound enough. It'll seal good enough. It may not look as good. And that's what I'm going to go with. And so it sounds like you were doing a lot of those types of things, almost engineering firefighting. I think some people call it that too, but like, like that For type sure. of work where it's like, okay, here's the problem. How are we moving forward? Is, was that, that pretty common in that job? We did our very best limit that, yeah. but Sure, it ha but it happens, right? But that's but that's why they have engineers on staff. Yeah, that was, um, and you know, it's, it's also it hurts pride, too, right? When you make a mistake, you they come to you and say, "Hey, you made a mistake." Um, there's, you know, fifty people sitting out on the production floor doing nothing right now because you pulled out the wrong rivet. So you know, get it fixed. You're running around, as I said, like you said, purchasing. Um, hey, will you? these rivets versus the other rivets um they're still structurally sound but you know maybe they're the wrong shade of blue or um whatever it may be the spacing may be wrong in those rivets you know there, there's a lot of different things obviously that goes together in a trailer and um we, we did a pretty good job we had a pretty good system on how to minimize those mistakes but they definitely happen and there is a lot of firefighting and you know come up with the best solution and um, it really helps, I think, at least it helped me because I was a new engineer to have the other more experienced engineers there to say, oh, I did this before. You just need to do this or whatever it is and use, you know, a lot of teamwork to get through those moments. Yeah, gotcha. 
so that that custom design engineer was that title. It, it, now that you are through it, would, is that still an appropriate title? I mean, that sounds like the generic mechanical engineer title. I would, <laughs> yeah, I would think if it, people were to like, let's say someone list, was listening and interested in that that type of like general idea of a job. I guess what title would you search in job search? Uh, that's a good question. Like, I would say almost like a bill of materials engineer because that was our job is to create the bill of materials and make sure that that bill of materials was correct. Okay. Gotcha. And all the other stuff was because of that or yeah. due to that. Sure. But yeah, it's almost like that was the primary responsibility was the right. bill of materials and yep. everything else just was a function of the, the decisions made for that. So, right. Correct. Okay. Yeah, all that planning stuff that you don't do, at least in undergrad that often. I didn't really ever make a bill of materials in undergrad, maybe because maybe there was on some projects, but like a thing there of, of, of specking and costing and doing all those things like wasn't, wasn't part of my education. So obviously you're not always prepared for everything you're going into. Uh, what was it like learning on the job there? Well, my technology degree actually prepared me pretty good for that because we did do a little bit of that. You know, we were, you know, uh, introduced to the bill of materials and how there were uh, part numbers and sub part numbers and things like that. And also my internship, uh, you know, having a little bit of experience with that helped out as well. But um, I think the biggest thing I learned there was basically how to work every day in an engineering environment. So your internship, at least my internship, a couple months long, you, you know, the projects, they assigned me as an intern weren't that important. You know, I, I still had presentations to do and, you know, little projects here and there, but you know, no one was yelling at me when I did something wrong. Cause your interns are only really so responsible. Right. I mean, that's, that's where it gets down to is like, how responsible are you? Cause I mean, it's, or how high are you going to stick your head up? Like, cause that, that's where, you know, the higher you stick it up, the, the harder it's going to get chopped off. Like, but there are perks to sticking your head up higher. It's how you it's grow. How you, you know, yep. get paid more if that's what you care, or it's how you grow and get do more things and get more responsibility. So it's def it's definitely a balance. And I would say, you know, for my when I when I used to work, I guess I'll say that in, in industry, like um, it was every day. It was deciding how much am I going to stick my head out today. Okay, I got this email. How am I going to respond? Am I going to respond a way that sticks my head out a little bit more because I think it's the better thing to do, or am I just going to sit here and let other people respond? And that's, that's what you learn. Like, I mean, sorry, Pat, to get to your point, I guess what I'm trying to say is like, these are, these are what you learn as an engineer. It's like in actually executing being an engineer, it's, you know, your comfortableness with sticking your head out. It's all these other things that you're just, you're not, you're not going to learn in school, but still play into the engineer you become. Right. Absolutely. So you, you did not stay at Wabash, uh, for, Obviously, up until now, you went to another job. What was what was the deciding factor in the process like for moving on to something else? The deciding factor was a personal one for sure. Um, I I like the people there. The job was pretty good there. But my wife at the time, uh, well, she wasn't my wife. She was my fiance at the time. Was living in Richmond, Virginia, and so we were doing the long distance thing, and we've been doing it for about two years at that point and she said hey let's try to live closer to each other now that you know we both have jobs um so i said okay and we, we picked out a few different spots that maybe both of us could find jobs and the spot that worked out the best was charlotte north carolina 
So I moved down to South Carolina there and I worked for Smith's Medical, uh, Flexibles Technologies, and we made CPAP hoses for people with sleep apnea um, that connected the mask that they wear at night to the positive pressure machine. And uh, my title there was R&D engineer, which didn't quite describe what I was doing. Um, yeah. Shocker. So I was more of a process engineer down there. Um, we we had a few different uh, CPAP hoses that we'd have to make, and I was in charge of about um, three of them. And they were some of the higher volume parts in our facility um, and the highest, uh, one of their marquee products. So um, the plant manager was always inspecting our lines and making sure that we were doing things correctly and the engineering manager uh, as well. Interesting. So you, so your title was R&D engineer, but it sounds like you were on the manufacturing oh, floor every day. Time. I spend most of my day out there. <laughs> um, that's super no, confusing though. I mean, that's a bait think, switch. Yeah, that's a, well, in my I mean, mind. A lot of R&D titles, you're expecting to be like in a lab, nowhere near yep. manufacturing, doing all this yeah, stuff. In, but this did you know that? Sorry, like I'm just trying to like in the job title. Did it like lead you to that, or I did? When, so did you did you find out the first day that you were gonna? Do, like, yeah. I'm curious as a when you found out what you actually were gonna do. Uh, I found out probably in the phone interview. Um, the way I got this job okay. was that I had my resume on one of the job boards, and the HR manager found my resume on the job board and said, "Oh, he has." extrusion molding experience from his internship let's see if he's interested in this job so he actually called me and said hey you know the title is r&d engineer but you'll be kind of in charge of a couple different programs there's not a whole lot of development um you know do you want to talk about it so you know me being me i'm not going to say no to anything as far as interviews or um, learning about different jobs so I said, yeah, and uh, they actually sent um, the engineering manager up to me in Indiana, and we talked about it there, and uh, had an interview in Indiana versus having to go down to South Carolina. Hmm, I've never heard of that before. No, that's, that's cool. awesome. Yeah, that's a, what a cool, I mean, what a cool way. I think that's pretty, imagine if that was how it, it was, it, like if it, is that, sorry, yeah. it's so foreign, right? But imagine if that's how everything was, like you didn't go to be interviewed they came to you. Yeah. I mean, you couldn't see the facility, yeah. but like, hmm, yeah, so yeah. that's cool. I mean, that's I think cool. he was on his way somewhere to like Chicago or something. Oh, so he just stopped okay. by, but it, it was pretty okay. cool. I didn't have to go down there. And then um, I learned a lot more about the job there. And then finally I went down and visited and met a few of the other engineers yeah. and got to see the place before I actually agreed to, to work there. Right. So one thing you said that I really, really liked in terms of your, it's almost like an approach to networking is like always leave doors open. And I really think that's such a great approach to networking is like, if someone wants to have a coffee, if someone wants to like talk or like, like make yourself available for that. Cause we, I mean, one of the big things about the show is just life is random. How you get, how people get their jobs is random. And if, if that is the, how it happens, the more doors you open, the more exposure you're going to get from that randomness. Like, I mean, that's really kind of how I, how, how I always thought about it is like life is, is so random and it's all about, you know, it can be about who you know and stuff. So just try to meet as many people as you can try to get exposure and talk to as many people as can, especially managers and stuff. The more FaceTime you can get in front of managers to learn about them and get insight from them, 
even also so they can just learn your face. Like all that stuff is really, really great. So I, so I just, you pointed out there and I just wanted to emphasize it because I totally, totally agree. Like leave as many doors open as possible. Like people, people say oftentimes like don't burn bridges and that's true, but I f- like flip it the other way, like leave as many doors open right. as possible. Yeah. All the time. And that's exactly what I've always tried to do mainly because I don't have a specific passion about a certain aspect of engineering. So, you know, I'm not sure what I'll like next. You know, I like what I do now, but maybe there's something better down the road. I don't know. Um, And, uh, you know, just get yourself out there. Like you were saying, you know, I just put my resume on one of these job online job boards and a random HR manager called me out of the blue. So you never know who's going to be on the other end of the phone. You know, when you get those strange phone calls or strange, uh, strange phone number phone calls. Your job was more on the line, I guess, than the title might dictate. And when I think about people working online, because I haven't done it, that's been not a part of my engineering journey at all so far. Uh, were you getting like called in a lot in your off work hours? Was that, hey, something's wrong. We need you in here to come fix this when you know, you've already gone home or it's the weekend or something. Uh, I think that's kind of an image that comes into my mind and uh, about kind of working closer to manufacturing because every every minute that line is down, no matter where you are, the company will always you know say yeah, they're millions. losing money. <laughs> we're, lo- we're losing millions. Uh, did did you have that experience at all um, in your role there? It was a possibility, but thankfully our maintenance department was really good and lived a lot closer to the facility than I did. Um, I had an hour drive. I think it was forty miles each way. So by the time they called me and let's say they had to wake me up and get me in there, you know, they have to wait another hour where they can call the maintenance manager that's been there 25 years um, to get the machine fixed or whatever. Um, I did. I probably got a few phone calls throughout my time there, but I was able to talk to them over the phone versus actually have to drive in um, at odd hours. But yeah, it, I mean, it definitely was a possibility and I was not looking forward to that at all. <laughs> Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, so I guess along that same line, were there were there other things, good or bad, that you that you liked or didn't like about the manufacturing type job? Like for for those thinking that hey, I'm I might like a manufacturing type job. I guess what would you what advice would you kind of give them, or what would you tell them about being that type of person? You definitely have to build relationships with the line workers. Um, yeah, because those are the people that are going to give you the feedback about the line. Um, if you implement something new, those are the people that are going to have to do it. So you have to, you know, figure out how to motivate them, even though you're not their supervisor to do whatever project, whether it's uh, a test run on a new product or, you know, you're trying to uh, do a scrap study and they have to now write down every piece of scrap that they have or weigh it or whatever they need to do, um, so that was definitely something that I learned down there um, is, you know, just how to interact with different types of people. Yeah. Cause it's totally different. Like, I mean, I totally agree. I, I had an internship kind of near manufacturing and I remember one time I made this, there's like this bin sorting system and it always comes like this, right? The engineering manager says, Hey, we want to improve the process. Can you think about how to improve the process? And you put the engineering hat on, especially the <laughs> new right. young engineering hat. You're like, okay. Yeah. Like, well, if we just change the bins around, okay, I'll move this bin over here. It's a little bit closer. The, per- the operator will move slightly less, multiply that times a million and boom, we're saving money. Let's go. But and, and you, you stop, you think like that's the end, but it's so far from the 
the end of how that actually yeah. has to get implemented. Because I did something like that, and I ended up I had this this older lady. I didn't have any repertoire with her, like like you're talking about, and she just lit me up. Like she just, it was not her system. I and I couldn't communicate in that environment because I, I was trying. We were speaking totally different languages. Like she was telling me she didn't like it. And I kept being like, what's technically wrong with it? It's technically better. She didn't care the air at all about that. Cause that's not her thing, right? She comes in 40 hours a week doing the exact same thing. Well, every, she's like, probably been doing it for 20 it's, years. It's so, and now you're trying to change up her routine. Yeah, it, it's like telling her to yeah, not brush exactly. her teeth in and the so morning or something. Yeah, yeah. Or brush your teeth with your left hand. Yeah, Cause it's exactly. technically better. And like, it, 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 who, however they internalize it, like, you, you have to approach those hard situations and it helps so much to have some kind of repertoire with them, some kind of interaction, some kind of yep. relationship and it's communication. It's and donuts. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. I've had some of the best success with people with, with, with not necessarily in a line, but people who need to like run tests or do special things. I'm like, I'm going to bring some donuts beforehand. I'm going to bring some donuts, you know, afterwards yep. donuts help. Well, yeah. Cause it, I mean, in that, but that's, it's a, this element of communication we talk about with engineers, but like the, on the manufacturing side, it just seems so obvious. I totally forgot about that. Like this interacting with the line people and how you do that yeah. effectively. Um, cause, cause they can, they can totally make or break you. I mean, if you have everyone who's responsible for, for your success, not liking you for whatever reason, but it just seems weird because in some ways, like it seems manipulative. It, it, I mean, uh, you're trying to get them to do something that they don't necessarily want to do so i guess in that way it is i wouldn't call it manipulating them but you're trying to change their behavior and when you have that relationship with them you know if you talk to them you know it doesn't have to be much sometimes 20 minutes a week just saying hey how's the kids or you know hey did you go fishing this weekend or how's in my case uh thought the Clemson football game, you know, talk Clemson football or South Carolina football. That was huge down there. Mm -hmm. Um, despite not having a horse in the race, you know, just talk about what they want to talk about, get to know them a little bit. And then, you know, two months down the line, a month down the line, you can ask them, Hey, do you mind trying this? Um, and then maybe if that doesn't work, then you bring in the donuts or (laughs) whatever you need to maybe talk to their manager. But, um, you know, it's just easier when you get, when you know somebody, you know, just like, uh, getting someone on a podcast. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I think, I think it can be harder when like incentives aren't aligned because you got this project. And so your boss like, Hey Pat, do this for me. Uh, knowing that like, okay, maybe if I do a great job on that, it's going to look good for me. Maybe I could get a bonus or help me get the next job in the company or something where the person that you're trying to like make change, do their job. Like they are probably not going to have a, anywhere near but the potential same outcome that you are they're just like implementing a process and so i think there's always always that tension between we don't we don't go into this too deep but but the engineer versus the shop floor of of different incentives and what's happening and everything but that's where empathy comes into play and i mean but i mean like understand even just acknowledging other people's situations like you're like you're portraying that right now brennan this idea of thinking through the life of the person that you Mm -hmm. are affecting like that that tool as an engineer is an important one the, the tool being you thinking through the effects of your decisions on other people, because then that will help. It's going to, it's just going to make it easier. Cause I mean, it's, it's like do unto others as you would want to do unto yourself. Right. I mean, you, if, if someone's going to have the ability to affect your day to day, you would hope that the decisions they would make, they would think through. And so you want to essentially give that same courtesy to other people. Um, and it sounds like it's just super critical in the manufacturing. Absolutely. Okay. So, 
What, what year is this? What, when are we? When are we leaving? Um, we are Smith's leaving Medical. in 2014. So okay. Yep. So it's 2014. The job market yes. has come back. Things are okay in the job world, and we're ready to make a change. Yep. So let's let's talk through. I guess why? What's what's causing? So the while I was in changing. South Carolina, once again, my wife and I were doing weekend trips to see each other every weekend. Um, wasn't too bad, but. You know, it wasn't ideal. We still weren't actually living together despite being married for uh, a little over a year. So we said, okay, let's try this again. And um, her headquarters was here in Detroit. And I said, well, Detroit works. Uh, you know, with the automotive industry, I'm sure I could find a job up there somewhere. Um, so luckily enough, my dad had actually worked in Detroit in the early 90s. So he was able to give me a list of companies that, you know, engineering companies that I could apply to. And Roush was one of those companies. Um, and I applied to, I don't know, probably four or five different jobs within Roush. And I actually got a call from HR there and they said, Hey, you don't really fit for the job that, um, you apply to, but there's this other NVH job you're a really good fit for. So I said, that's interesting. Cause I had no NVH experience. I took uh, one semester. There was an MVH class in college, um, which was lucky enough there. But um, so I said, sure. You know, once again, I didn't want to close down any doors. Uh, you know, I'll talk to the manager there. Um, and oddly enough, the the manager said it's an MVH job, but there's a lot of a lot of casting, which is very similar to uh, injection molding. So we think that some of your experience there can transfer over to the casting side of things. And then we can kind of bring you up to speed on the NVH side of things, which I thought was interesting. Cause I, you know, it's, it's a new skill. I get to learn about NVH, um, something I knew very little, little about and, you know, get to work with these castings, which I had had a whole lot of experience, only a brief, uh, introduction in college once again. So, I accepted the job and became a product development engineer. And I was in charge of about seven different casting programs coming out of Asia. Um, so our sub suppliers were in Asia and we brought the castings in and then resold them to customers. And our names went on those castings, Roush. So we were responsible for all the quality and everything there and um you know just started learning a lot really um because with those programs i was responsible for talking to the sub suppliers um the machine shop the foundry and then also talking to our customers as well um to make sure that they were happy with our products and you know anytime there was a new opportunity for a casting program you know i, I was the one at the potential customer you know, shaking hands and trying to talk through their needs and what we could do for them. Um, and just pretty much anything that has to do with those programs I was responsible for. Um, I didn't necessarily do all of the work. Let's say there was a quality issue. I would work through our Roush quality department to uh, coordinate the efforts there because, um, you know, they obviously know a lot more than about quality and testing and measuring than I do. So use those resources and just, you know, my job is to make sure that got done, make sure the customer was happy with all of that. Um, 
I don't know if you guys are familiar with like the 8D process uh, in quality there. There's like eight steps to correcting a quality issue in, in an automotive gotcha. uh, environment there. So, Okay. So it sounds like you had a lot of stuff going on. I mean, it sounds like... It, I mean, one thing to know, I mean, I just know this, but I mean, Roush is a smaller company, so you're in a smaller group, so you had a lot of hats. And that's kind of an opportunity because it sounds like you were able to fill a lot of the steps of this process. I mean, I think product development engineer, product engineer is a pretty pretty standard title. They do a lot of different things. Um, but maybe maybe if you can just, let's just, just pick an example program or just make up a program. Can you like, so there's the first customer interaction, you're going to the customer defining the specs. Okay. So you leave that meeting and you have their technical requirements kind of like just, you know, yeah, relative, I mean, five, five minutes or whatever, just like walk us through what that looks like um, for you following that product through, through. So generally the customer has an idea of what they want. Um, It's usually actually a full technical drawing and we will take that technical drawing and work with our suppliers to make sure that that's actually a part that can be made through the different casting processes that they're capable of. And if it's not, then we have to go back to the customer and say, hey, can you change this dimension? Maybe it's a little too tight for the casting process or whatever it is. And then go back and forth with the customer and the supplier until everyone's happy. We get bids from our suppliers and then create our quote with those bids. And then at that point, our customer sometimes comes back to us and says, hey, the price is too high. So then we revert back to another round of, okay, can we alter alter the design to make this cheaper? So can we open up some specs that don't that are a little bit too tight? Can we take out some material? Um, can we package it differently? There's all sorts of things we can do to try to lower the price um, to meet our customers' uh, needs. Um, and then when that process is hopefully successful or we get the PO from the customer and start in on the tooling um, with, with the tooling. Um, once the tooling's done, usually we go over to the supplier and see the first few parts be made. And then we usually bring back a couple with us to have them measured at Roush. And they're also measured at the foundry and at the machine shop. And we try to, line up the dimensions to make sure everything's, you know, we're measuring it the same way that our suppliers are measuring it. And then there's uh, in the automotive industry, what they call the PPAT process, which is a qualification process that it's a packet of material that we have to submit to our uh, customers that says, you know, we can make this product. Um, It has CPK numbers, uh, dimensional reports, material specifications and testing all sorts of stuff in there. And then once that's approved, then we go into production and um, then just kind of follow production, make sure that everything's on schedule through production. The workload goes down quite a bit there. And then once it starts going end of life, then we have to uh, talk to our customers once again, make sure that we're not making too many parts. We don't have a whole lot of scrap or excess parts laying around when the program ends. Everyone's happy. With this, with this type of work, you're obviously carrying a lot of hats yes. like we kind of talked about and doing a lot of different things. What is it like trying to organize all of that when you're, when you're balancing a technical thing of how do we make the trade-offs we have to make to you know, make a competitive bid to then going through all that process, all the paperwork, all the checking the boxes and everything? 
Um, there's a big mix there between not just a straight engineering, but also the logistical side of getting it done. Is that, does that, I guess, take a lot to learn and understand, or is it kind of something that as you're going through it, it's all very natural? Um, I think it's a little bit of both. Uh, definitely the PPAT process takes a little bit to understand, um, especially because I didn't come from a quality background. But some of the other stuff, I think, came naturally, you know, talking to customers, uh, talking to suppliers. Um, there was definitely a learning process working internationally, um, you know, talking to people from different countries that communicate differently. And, um, you know, that that always presents a challenge. But, you know, it, it is a lot to keep track of. Um, it's It's so important to keep everything written down, at least for me, because there's no way I can remember, remember all of the aspects of all of these programs. And, um, you know, you know, when your boss or, yeah, especially cause like you're saying, you had yes. seven, you had seven programs yep. at one time, right? When you started. So like seven programs and all different phases yes. of that. And, you know, when you sit down at your desk, like, how do you figure out what you're doing next? Right. How do you prioritize between that? Like, those are all things that, you know, you just got to kind of figure out, like, there's no, there's no engineering class. That's how do you manage the priorities of seven different casting yeah. projects? Yeah. Like, it's not, you know what I mean? That's just how it is. Like it's, it's unfortunately for those listening, a bunch of trial and error where you do it one way and then you get yelled at cause you didn't prioritize enough stuff. But it, unfortunately, like it, it doesn't necessarily work like that. Like the priorities come when fires right. come, like it's, everything's fine. until it's not fine and you can't plan for everything. And so you, your, your best option is really just, doing your best that you can to try and cover as many bases as you can, but realizing that things are going to go wrong. And so learning how to handle the situation where things go wrong. Yep. Like did, so like, I mean, do you feel like you have a process for that now? Like, do you like when you get the email that says, Hey Pat, we got some parts in that are bad. Like, yeah, I feel like it, everyone's initial thought is, Oh crap. Oh crap. Oh crap. And I'm sure that's probably some of yours, but I imagine now that you're more into it, like, it's got to be more like, okay, you know, here yep. we go. Like this, it's just a thing. Like, like, do you yeah. feel like that? No, I guess um, I mean, I'm just I mean, that. there's definitely the part of me that always says, oh crap, oh crap, oh crap. Um, but I think it, it helped because I think it was like within the first two weeks on the job, that first email came through that said, Hey, we have bad parts. <laughs> and so I just kind of looked at me. I was like, I have no idea what to do. I've been here two weeks. So, um, I was lucky enough to just talk to my manager and he's like, all right, these are the steps you need to do. So we walked through that first one and it was, you know, basically from day one on how to do that. And we walked through the steps and he kind of held my hand through it. And then the second one came not too long after that. And, you know, I, I tried it on my own. Obviously I made a few mistakes here and there. And, uh, you know, every time, we have one of these issues or a new program, you learn something from the previous issue or previous programs or previous issues. And, you know, I just try to, I actually have a log of those on my uh, Microsoft OneNote of all the stuff I've learned about different things. And we have another one for our entire department because these things, you know, they come back, uh, you know, different casting issues um, might show up in three different programs. So, by the third one, you're like, okay, I know what the source is. You know, I know what to do, that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, I mean, as, as a program manager, you know, I started 
as a project engineer there and then became a program manager you're responsible for all these different parts so you need to have all of that information because anytime anybody has a question the customer the supplier management um even the different parts within Roush you're working with you know they're coming to you they're calling you they're emailing you and you need to have that information at the at the least at the tip of your fingers if not the tip of your tongue yeah, no, and I think that's great. I mean, the, the big theme there, and it continues to be a theme, but like continual learner and learning from, I, I say learning from failure. I mean, I, it's it's reasonable failure in these cases. Like things happen. Like it's just how it is. Like if, if there were never any problems, there wouldn't need right. to be engineers. Like that's the fact of it. Like there's going to be, there's going to be problems. Like for those listening, like it's going to happen, especially if you're young. Like it's your best course is to figure out how to learn from your failure. So that one, you can acknowledge failure is coming and it doesn't hit you so hard so that in the moment you can learn from it and then take that with you to the next thing. Because there's a lot of people that when they fail, they shut down. They like, they mentally, they one, stop communicating and like they're just very poor in the moment. And you see that. And one thing I see from good leaders is their ability to handle failure well. And it sounds like your manager did that. It's like, hey, you know, when you walked in, he's not like, ah, it's happening again. What are we going to do? It's just like, okay. Hey, you know, cause he, I mean, he's seen right. it how many times, right? It's just like, okay, Hey, it, this happened. It's not ideal. We try everything we can to not have it happen. But when it happens, yep. here's the steps, let's walk through it. And in that moment, I'm sure like, you know, you feel, you feel good about it. And so that's what good leaders and people, not even, I don't even mean just like formal leaders, like your boss, but like good colleagues do is they help everyone calm down and, and, and fail your moments and learn from them so that you can, you can move forward. And so that's, that's just something you learn because it's hard. It sucks to fail. It really does suck mm-hmm. to fail. It makes you feel like crap, but um, it makes you feel more like crap if you do it continually and you repeat the yeah, same failure. It, so. <laughs> one thing that's a little bit better um, or one thing that I learned, I think, from my first job where all my failures, we'll say, were my fault. You know, let's say I fat fingered one of those tr- uh, bill of materials or I just put in the wrong part. Um, you know, so they're yelling at me, you know. Even though these are our parts at, at Roush, you know, it's not me fat fring- fingering the, the mistake or whatever. Usually, I mean, I, I have made mistakes, but um, usually it's our supplier. So it's um, doesn't feel as personal, I guess. Does that make sense? Hmm. Um, sure. But yeah. In, it, yeah, it's not an attack yeah, it's on a, you. It's yep. And then the, the other thing there is, you know, just like you said, just staying calm in the moment. Um, my manager was really good at that. And it just, the whole team feeds off of his vibe there. You decided uh, to get an MBA, yes. which is something that we've seen a lot of, a lot of engineers uh, get that have come on the show, at least. Uh, what was the motivation for doing that? And do you, has, has that paid off for you uh, since you've got it? Yeah, especially relative to like a master's in engineering. Like, I guess your, your thoughts on kind of how you how you got to the MBA as the path forward. I guess as far back as undergraduate, I knew that I didn't want to be a super technical, um, you know, sit at your desk, make prints, um, design things every single day, don't talk to anybody, kind of engineer. Um, I I knew I wanted to learn about engineering and kind of use that knowledge to help the company in a bigger, broader way. I think that makes sense what yeah. you're saying. I mean, yeah, there's a lot of, I mean, the MBA is definitely more of a big, big 
reaching, you know, I mean, master, a master's engineering is more individual. Maybe your small team helps you more technically, but the MBA helps you think bigger, helps you think bigger about the company and bigger about the company's reach. Yeah. So I, I think that makes a lot of sense to, as, as the tool to kind of help you step towards that direction. Yeah. And, and that's, that's exactly what I was going for. There is, um, you know, I, I knew I didn't want to be an engineer for the rest of my career. So I needed a little bit broader of an education. Um, you know, they don't teach you about finance a whole lot in engineering. So I needed to learn a little bit more about that and some of the softer skills that, you know, most engineering schools don't have. Um, so I went out and got the MBA rather than the master's in engineering. Why did you choose Michigan? I guess, or how did you, um, was it in-person classes? Was it weekend night classes? I yep. guess what, were there specific things about that program that um, tied you to it? Uh, I wanted to do a mix of both in-person and online classes um, because, you know, once again, building that network, meeting people. I, I knew that, you know, you, you talk to people, you email people, um, you might have a video chat online, but it's not the same as sitting next to the same person for 16 weeks and actually getting to know them, getting to know professors and things like that, um, I thought were was a uh, something I needed to do in order to help my career even farther than the actual material learned out of the book. So that's why I picked University of Michigan Dearborn. Um, and that you know, the cost was definitely a factor there too. Um, you know, the University of Michigan's right here, Michigan State. Um, you know, I didn't want to go into any sort of debt or anything yeah no that's totally fair yeah i think that i mean the cost is for sure yeah uh, you know a big part of the decision and if you're yeah. able to if you're able to find the tool that achieves the objectives that you want at then it's just cost right i mean yeah so i mean that makes yeah as as at work when you have to make decisions about technical achievement versus cost like you know, we do it all in our personal lives too so yep yeah so um you know i got the mba i don't think I, I just got it in December. So congratulations, yeah, man. That's awesome. Appreciate it. Awesome. Yeah. Just trying to be like Troy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know about that, but doing it while having young kids too. I mean, just busy. Yeah. 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 Um, that all the credit goes to my wife there. She was the one that allowed me to have the time to study and go to classes and do everything while she was, uh, dealing with our, our twin newborn girls. So, uh, just a little busy, just had a few things going on. One, one, two newborns, you know, MBA class. Oh yeah. Also I'm working too, you know, and just all kinds of free time. A couple things there. So, um, just a, but, <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, no, yeah dude, I'll, for I'll, sure. Takes a team. I'm man. definitely looking forward to using my MBA here, um, to, to help out Roush. I gotta do something. Do like you feel that. like it's helped, it's helped giving you, uh, a broader perspective. I mean, so you say you're interested in, in getting the ability to help the company, the help the company brought in a more broader sense. Do you feel like it gave you the tools to do that? I think it has. Um, just like an undergraduate degree, you know, it can't teach you everything, but it kind of gives you the base knowledge to go into whatever you want to do as far as management goes, whether, you know, it's department managing and trying to, you know, uh, deal with different personalities or deal with uh, profit and loss statements or balance sheets for the department. 
Or if you want to do something completely different, go into, I don't know, HR management or something along those lines. Do you have any other, I guess, do you have any other big questions? Um, so, yeah, one thing I did want to kind of eke out a little bit of time for here is the, you're, you're the first person who's been on the show, Pat, that's had a lot of print experience. And I think a lot of people think like mechanical engineer, like they're working in prints all the time. And you're a person who out of all the people who've been on who is working heavily in prints, like looking at prints. And for those listening, like prints can get incredibly detailed. Like it's not just about like, here's this, here's the square and it has dimensions of width and, and length of this. Like, it's like, okay, well, how square is it? Is it this square? What's the surface roughness? What, like, what are all these things? And I, it just, I am not a person who's into that. that. Like it, it just, so I'd love for you to just talk about it, Pat. Talk about your experience with getting comfortable with prints. Um, and for those interested in it, maybe just advice that you'd have, like if, if, just so people can hear what it's like for someone who works in the deep, in the deep, deep weeds of prints every day. Just like you described it, it can get as deep as you want, as far as the weeds go. Um, it's actually surprising how many people in industry don't know how to read prints. Um, it's almost, everyone kind of reads them differently sometimes. Um, so there's a system called GD and T, which is geometric tolerancing and dimensioning. And, uh, you know, th there's specific symbols and datums and all sorts of things. And, you know, they have to be interpreted. Um, and it's not like reading a book or just looking at the numbers. They Sometimes they have to be added together. Uh, you know, different symbols will affect other dimensions or multiple dimensions. Um, I... I've sat through many a discussion and had to bring in four and five different opinions on how to read a print. And it, it's very, very important because almost every contractor, every PO says all parts must conform to the print, which makes mm -hmm. sense on a general level. But if you don't read it the same as your customer, then there's an issue there. Yeah, it seems like a huge like asterisk yeah. on like this whole like, hey, here's your hundred thousand dollar million dollar quote asterisk. Like, it's got to be the same as the print. Well, then like, well, like, there's just so much stuff. Like, even what's not on the print. Like, even just like rain. Like, surface roughness is like one thing. Like, it's just like you could like if the customer cares about it, but it's not on the print or like all yep. this stuff. It just seems to be so frustrating. So maybe just my follow up question. Thanks for kind of bringing in more details and your thoughts is. How did you learn? Like, I mean, like how, what was your, what was your learning experience like to get, to get comfortable with now? So I, I think that was a, another difference between mechanical engineering and mechanical engineering technology. We actually took uh, two classes actually in print reading and one was print reading and then the other one was GD and T. So we started from the beginning, just like they did, um, you know, in the, 19 well anytime before cad and we actually had to draw prints um they'd give us like a, a model let's say it was a coffee cup or something and we have to measure it and then draw it um you know in the specific format that they wanted and make sure all the dimensions were correct and then they grade it and make sure everything uh you know was right there so that's where i started and then you know once you get into industry you know, there, there's def always something that you haven't learned, and it's a lot of learn by experience. Um, 
you know, Roush has a few GDT experts. So, you know, if I don't understand something completely, I go to them. And a lot of times our customers or even the designers making the drawings don't exactly know what they're doing or how the interactions work, or they may know and they've just overlooked it because there's 500 dimensions on this print. And they forgot that dimension 47 interacts with dimension 236. So, uh, you know, it's definitely a skill learned. um, And it's definitely very important, at least in my job. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. And it, you know, it sounds like one of those things that you could spend your entire life on and still not know it. So, and, and people but, have, that's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, same, similar as other people, you know, like use the experts around you, be open to learning and figuring it out. And that's, that's, I think that's good advice. Yeah. Yeah. Well, all right. Well, I think that brings us to about the hour mark, Pat. Thanks again for being on the show, man. Really, really, really appreciate it. I think, um, we should probably do our, our final the follow-up question that we always do is, you know, if you could talk to yourself back in undergrad and give yourself any advice, would, um, what would you tell yourself? Stay the course or would you, any any tidbits you'd, you'd want to let yourself know? Besides who's going to win the World Series in the next 10 years? Touche. Touche. What I would tell myself is I think – you know, kind of what we talked about before is just make sure that all your doors are open. Don't say no to anything until you really understand what it is, which I would say is at the very least through the interview process of a new job or talking to someone because you never know what you're going to like. You know, I, in undergrad, I wasn't really interested in NVH, but now that I'm in NVH, I think it's really interesting. And um, you know, how we can change the acoustics and vibrations on a vehicle just by adding weight in this area or adding rubber to this or whatever it is. Um, and, you know, same with casting processes. I didn't know much about that. And, you know, just keep learning. Yeah, definitely. No, that's keep learning. Common theme, common thing we've heard really from everyone coming on. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's been great having you on the show, Pat. We really appreciate coming and sharing, sharing your wide experiences today. Thanks for having me, guys. I appreciate it. Yeah, bye. Bye. I really enjoyed listening to Pat's story. Uh, he's done a lot of different things and uh, done it across... I don't know, kind of a different range of, of, of what he talks about there from from his first job doing doing quotes and customers and having to make bill of materials to kind of being process manufacturing to then going through the whole process uh, in his in his job at Roush through through creating products and getting them to, to production. And I think that brings an interesting point um, that a lot of what he does is not necessarily technical, but it has technical parts in it that are very key. So it's the reason why why it has to be someone with with an engineering degree and they're doing it because there are those key points, you know. Maybe someone who's not an engineer can go through all the the processes and logistics and everything, but it's only an engineer who can look at a print and say, okay, we need to change this to cut costs or we need to do this. Um, and having that experience and doing that, I think, is really important. 
And so it's interesting to think about how that all meshes together and kind of this bigger picture of technical skills, of people skills, working with customers, of finance skills. And for him, like, you know, he got the MBA to do things beyond that. But I imagine that also helps his daily work, too, and just thinking about things. I think that's a really important aspect that we often overlook um, in, in education, especially in engineering, of, you know, here's a problem, solve it, but not everything else around it. And But a large part of your job may not be technical, but when you need to be technical, it's very important that you do it right. Right. Yeah. No, I think that's a, I think that's a good point. Like when you're in school, you think everything's always technical all the time, but there's a lot of jobs out there that are required by, to be done by engineers, but are maybe only a small part of it that's actually technical. Um, but yeah, like you said, like it has to be done by an engineer. So, um, then, but then, yeah, you essentially then have a lot of engineering jobs that are a minority technical, but still having to be done by engineers. So there's a, then, then the focus becomes on a lot of those other skills that we keep we keep talking about in the show. I think that's so true. Um, yeah. So the, the other part that I loved about Pat's story is talking through the mechanical engineering technology, the technology type degree and, and how that really, really worked out well for him and how he was so happy that he made the switch. And I think that's, I think that's awesome. I think that a lot of people should know that that exists and that that is really a good option for, for certain people. You know, if you don't, if you know, you don't want to go down the technical path, but you still want to be an engineer, it's a great option. And I think it's cool to hear his story and how he was able to leverage that. And even the things that like he was talking about, like, like for his job now, and like we're talking about like GD and T and like that, and how he actually took two classes on that. Like our like our mechanical engineering curriculum didn't didn't have anything like that, and so like his education prepared him better for his current job than my education would have. And I think it's good to think about the technology degree as that. You know, if you if you have a sense of where you want to go, like it can be the better engineering degree for you, um, based on what you think you want to do. Yeah, I definitely think so. I think about a lot of. Um, what I do in my job and looking at like other job postings and things, it's not, can you solve equations? Can you do research? It's, can you do this specific thing? Which is, which is everything is sort of hands-on some way in engineering. Um, unless you're in a very deep technical researchy type field. And I think, I think when I was going through college, uh, I kind of had these mixed feelings about the mechanical engineering technology stuff to want to be like, well, they're not doing it as in depth as, as you know, we regular engineers are, which was really dumb of me to think that way, but also kind of being like, Maybe they are. They're like building stuff and doing things hands on and getting the experience. And um, yeah, it's definitely not anything to be discounted. It's just as good. It's it's sometimes even better, like we're yeah. saying with Pat. Yeah. Like, I mean, because you can flip that your, your same thought as an undergrad of like, hey, they're not going in depth enough into the question of are we going too in depth? Like, is my curriculum training me to be too technical when realistically the job I'm going to get isn't going to be isn't going to require me to be this technical? And I'd be better off taking these other type of classes. Like, I think that's a legit thought of, of the process that you, I don't think I understood as an undergrad either. So, yeah, definitely. Well, well awesome. It's great, great conversation. I'm super glad we got to talk to Pat and uh, looking forward to what's coming next. Yeah. Until next time, everyone. Bye. See ya. Thanks for listening to this episode of engineer your career with Troy Bauman and Brennan Timrak. For more information about the show, visit our website at EYCpodcast.com. There you can find show notes for each episode and get in touch with Troy and I. If you or someone you know are an engineer with an interesting or even not so interesting career journey and would like to be on the show, go on the website, send us a short bio, and we may just invite you to come on and share your story. And finally, if you want to show your support, please rate, review, like, or subscribe to the show on your podcast player of choice.